Pros. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and also consider visiting at thecallface.buzzsprout.com and click on the support button and a shout out to our three current supporters. Thank you for helping covering our costs. In this episode, I speak with Alicia Perez Porro. Alicia is a scientist working in the space of climate diplomacy. She trained as a marine biologist researching sponges, but her heart wasn't really in research. A life-changing journey to Antarctica helped her discover her passion in science activism. We speak about her childhood connection with nature and the importance of role models in opening perspectives and helping with self-acceptance. We both express our conviction that our connection with nature and deeply grasping how we humans are part of nature is central to solving today's climate and biodiversity crises. I hope this conversation inspires you to become an activist too. Hi, Alicia. Good morning. I'm absolutely delighted that uh, you're joining me on this episode of At The Call Face today. Uh, we've been planning this conversation for some time and I'm really glad to, to see it come, come about. Hi, Philip. Thank you for inviting me and for the patience to schedule <laughs> this around all my multiple moves around the world. <laughs> Yeah, and, and some some uh, unfortunate health issues as well. So <laughs> yes, and health issues. You're right. Yeah. So I'm really super excited about this conversation. I absolutely love your life story, but also the space that you're in at this juncture of science and diplomacy, uh, where you have really a unique vantage point in so many different worlds that that intersect. Uh, and, and myself working in, in energy and being very conscious about some of the climate challenge that are really, really, uh, that require uh, policymakers, private sector and, and the general public also to, to collaborate. Um, I, I, re I really hope that through our conversation, we can trigger a few insights and maybe open a few perspectives uh, on, on, on this. Absolutely. I know you've spoken already a lot about it publicly and in other forums about the start of your life. Uh, so I hope you don't mind going back uh, on this topic as well and, and telling your story one more time. Uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated by, by this topic of how our early life experience uh, shape our sense of self, our relation to the world and, and give us a bit of a framework for how we see um, our, um, our imprint a little bit on, on, on the world. And I'd love if you could share a bit um, some of these early moments of your life, maybe some of your favorite memories of your, of your childhood. Yeah, this is totally my case because I am from Barcelona and I grew up between Barcelona in Spain and a little town two hours north in the coast. The name is Saduna. And my grandparents used to have a house there right by the beach. So my childhood, my summers were basically going there. 
spending time with my grandparents and going to the beach, going to the Mediterranean Sea. We used to have a little boat, so we used to go out with the little boat almost daily. So, and I used to collect shells and little pieces of corals from the beach. And I remember going out with my grandma to collect mussels that then we will cook at home for dinner. So um, I grew up with this big, big, big connection with the ocean. Well, in this case, the Mediterranean Sea. And, and that stayed with me forever. Because I remember thinking that I wanted to be a mermaid, <laughs> so, but, but I couldn't. So uh, when, when I grew up and it was time for me to choose um, what to do in college, I, I remember very clearly that I wanted to do marine biology. And at that time, Barcelona didn't have marine biology at the university. It was only biology. And in retrospect, that was really good because that gave me like a broader um, sense of everything. So, yeah, I guess that I couldn't become a, a mermaid. So I became a marine biologist. <laughs> and, and, and it's very much because of my childhood and, and all that time with my grandparents in the sea. I remember you you were telling me that you 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 were very drawn also to 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 animals uh, and you yeah. were you were collecting uh, flies, flies and putting them in a jar. <laughs> yeah. and, but but there's something that struck me when we spoke as well is you you shared with me a memory of your grandmother not not just collecting uh, shells and corals but but also picking up um, rubbish and putting yep. it in 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 the in the garbage. Yep. Uh, I'm I'm curious whether already in those days you were developing a view about the importance of, of pr protecting the environment, actually? Most likely. Uh, my grandma used to take with her a plastic bag to the beach and to the boat every day. And she used to say to us, we need to leave the beach and the ocean cleaner than we found it. So when we were at the beach or where we were like out in the, in the ocean sailing, Like, you know, sadly, you always find things floating, a Coca-Cola can or a plastic bag or like there's always rubbish everywhere. So we used to do that every day. And every day we were coming back home with a bag full of trash that we collected at the beach. And, and that's always a thing that, that stayed with me deeply because now I go to the beach with my kids. And I also bring a bag with me and we also collect trash in the beach. And they are also, you know, and I, and I explain the same story to them. With my grandma, we used to go to the beach and collect and you need to keep things clean and cleaner than you found them. So it's, um, it's definitely something that I think that also helped me to have this um, awareness of what humans are doing to nature probably and what was your motivation going into biology actually what 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 were you imagining like uh, what what was the draw i was never this is going to sound shocking but i was never interested in science per se i was interested in spending more time in nature basically and you know i was like how can i spend more time in nature and with animals and understanding the animals i as you mentioned I used to collect flies. I was probably seven, eight, 
and I used to collect flies and put flies in different jars and name them and observe them and take notes in a little notebook um, of their behavior. That's probably uh, one of the reasons why I decided to go into biology. I also, I at that time, I saw a movie um gorillas in the mist i think that is oh, the name. Yes. Yeah. and i really liked it and that was actually a really important movie for me because i saw a woman going into nature and doing with gorillas what i used to do with flies so uh i was like oh i i want to do that and 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 that's why i decided to go into into biology and it's funny because my colleagues, my friends at college, they were all into science. And that was not the part, like the, the my interest. And I guess that because of that, I didn't call myself a scientist until I was probably almost done with my PhD. So it was, I get it. Maybe it's my imposter syndrome, or maybe it's that I didn't see myself as a scientist. It's, it's fascinating. So, so it's about your own image of what what you were doing that that somehow wasn't uh, wasn't linked with this idea of a scientist. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And share a little bit more about the, these first um, forays into biology. What happened? What, what what were you discovering about yourself and about the world? I always felt a little bit different than my friends in college. They were very in, they knew what they wanted to do. And I was kind of lost. I didn't have, uh, I knew that I wanted to do something related with the ocean, but I didn't know exactly what or how. So um, I was almost at the end of my college years. I got a fellowship to go to Costa Rica. So I got a fellowship to study my last year of college at the University of Costa Rica. And when I got there, basically my brain exploded because I found, first of all, it was to study nature in nature, embedded in nature. I don't know if if you have been in Costa Rica, but Costa Rica is a hotspot for biodiversity in the world. And and they did they did and they are doing a really good job of preserving um, nature and and also at educating people about nature. So People living there, most of the people living there, they are really in contact with nature. And I learned that we don't live, at at least in Barcelona or in Spain, we don't live in contact with nature. And this is a huge problem for conservation, that we are completely disconnected from nature. And, And that's what I learned in Costa Rica, that connection with nature is key. And it's also good for your health. And for your spirit, <laughs> so <laughs> you're happier when you're in contact with nature. And that's where I learned. And it was actually when I was in Costa Rica, I ended working um, at a research center uh, that belonged to the university. And with them, I had one of my best jobs ever because I used to monitor uh, coral reefs in the Caribbean Sea and in the um, a little bit in the Pacific, but mostly in the Caribbean Sea. And and I used to spend a lot of time underwater. So I learned a ton about working in a, an environment that is not your typical environment, right? So 
Um, and it was underwater that I decided that I wanted to do research and that I wanted to do research with marine sponges, which is what I did for my PhD. I studied marine sponges. There's a few things you, you said that stood out for me. I mean, what, one is this sense of, you mentioned your friends were seemed to have a direction, but you didn't. So you, you were looking, I guess, for an angle or, or an area of interest or your place maybe in that space. And then you, you talked about Another thing which struck me, which seems to be a bit of a, a core, th a core aspect of your, of your personality now, is uh, as an advocate for this connection with nature, uh, and the way even we talk about nature and study nature in in uh, in many parts of the world, seems quite abstract and um, disconnected from why why human connection with nature seems to be important as almost part part of the solution itself actually for some. In some way, um, and th then you talked about your discovery of sponges as well, and I, I'm just it's such, a, such an unusual area of interest. It sounds like I don't know you arrived late in class and you were assigned that because it's the last thing on yeah. the list. Like how <laughs> how on earth I does one get it. involved yeah. <laughs> in in this topic? What what on earth is a sponge as well? Is that the, yeah. the ones you buy for for the bath or? Yeah, actually. I mean, there are a lot of different types. This is one of them. Um, yeah, so I, I liked invertebrates, animals without bones. And, and, and yep, I really like <laughs> okay. them. I don't know why they, you know, everybody was, when you think about a marine biologist, everybody thinks dolphins, whales, right? Yeah. And I was into sea slugs you know, jellyfishes. <laughs> so, um, I don't know why. I don't have an explanation, really. But I always liked these animals that most of the people might not be interested in and uh, or the general public. So, and I really liked corals, right? Corals are beautiful, colorful. And so, and when I was in Costa Rica... I used to work with corals, but then I realized, well, and this is because I wanted to study something that needed me to go underwater. Because if you study fishes, for instance, most of the people studying fishes, you fish the fishes. You don't go underwater to look for the fishes. And, and this applies for a lot of other animals. So what I wanted to do was to dive. And I looked for an excuse to dive, which was like, okay, animals that you need to go underwater to look at them and to collect them. And that means animals attached to the bottom, right? So, uh, and corals were one of them. So I started studying corals, but I realized that there were a lot of people studying corals and, and somehow that made them less appealing. So, and in that time that I was monitoring coral reefs, right, I was like uh, with a team of people and we were collecting data to see uh, the, the, how healthy or unhealthy a coral reef was. So, and I was in Guatemala, in Rio Dulce, and I was diving and it was like, you know, it was raining, it was cold, it was windy, there were a lot of current so it was not a fun dive and underwater it was probably um like 15 meters down and it was uh there were no visibility you know if you, like 
the visibility was probably one meter, one meter and a half. That means that if you have like a person two meters away from you, you are not able to see it because all the water is blurry. So it was not a fun dive. But somehow, for me, it was very key because I, it was, it was not a coral reef. It was a sponge reef. And I never saw a sponge reef before. I was used to corals everywhere. And this was sponges everywhere. It was like, what the heck is this, <laughs> right? It's equally colorful, but it's not the same. And the animals living around and the fishes living around are slightly different. Something was odd about it. And when I remember that when we finally finished collecting the data and went up and again, right? Like I went up the boat. It was windy and cold. But for me, it was like, and I, that was my first question to my mentor was like, what the heck is this? Like, this is not a normal reef. And she was like, yeah, this is a sponge reef. I was like, I didn't know that that's a thing. And that's how I got hooked up into sponges because it was like, I want to know more about these things. And by the way, sponges are animals. <laughs> and so you, you ended up doing your PhD thesis on, on this. And my master's. I'd, I'd love if you could share a bit about that PhD experience, but also for our listeners, I think most of whom, including myself, know nothing about sponges short of you can buy real ones for the bath what makes them interesting first of all everybody thinks that they're plants but they're animals so that's one of the things that make them interesting it's also they've been in the planet for a long 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 time and they're very resilient they've been through a lot of changes climate changes not the climate change that we're experiencing right now, but uh, they've been a lot, uh, they've been um, through a lot of different changes and they survived. And in fact, sponges were the main reef builders in the past. And it's just recently, recently meaning in the last, you know, um, couple of million years that <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, corals, became the main reef builders. So um, we are seeing, and this is not state-of-the-art information because I don't do sponges anymore, but because of climate change, some of this is, uh, is changing and some reefs are going back to being dominated by sponges instead of corals because corals are very picky. Corals you know, if the water is too too warm or too cold, they cannot thrive. So um, they they can live only in a very specific range of temperature, pH. Like conditions for corals are very specific. So um, for sponges, that's not the case. And because of that, you can use sponges as bioindicators. So you can. Um, monitor the how climate change is affecting a reef by monitoring the sponges. This is one of the things. It, they are also very interesting from the evolutionary perspective. In there's a lot of people studying evolution of sponges because they were either the first animal or like the first 
animals. Please share, share with us a little bit your, your PhD experience, because for many reasons, it was a very intense period over, over two different continents. Uh, it seems to have shaped you uh, a lot. Uh, so I'd, I'd love it if you could g give us a bit of a, uh, an insight into that, that, um, th that period of your life. My my PhD was a uh, was alphabet sponges and was about um, uh, genetic of uh, sponges. So I was um, instead of observing them, I was checking their genes and see how their genes were affected by climate change and by other parameters. So when I started that here in Barcelona, so when something happened, I will go back to this later. But something really bad happened to me. And my advisor here in Barcelona said to me, you're not going to finish your PhD if you stay here. You're going to quit. So let's find you a place in the world where you can continue your research. And she found me in Harvard from all the places. <laughs> she found me Harvard in Boston, wow. in the U.S. So I arrived to Boston, I think that 2009, and I continued my PhD there. I changed a little bit my research and I, still about sponges, but like different techniques. And at the beginning, I was very incredibly happy. I was really doing what I wanted to do. It was extremely challenging. My English was not like it is today. I, I learned a ton. And by the end of my PhD, things started to change because I started uh, not having fun anymore, like most PhD students probably. Um, but also I had some issues with some people inside my lab. I think that in this Ivy League university's competition is really, really high and sometimes creates toxic environments. And I, I found myself in a toxic environment and um, my advisor was not helpful. It was actually, he was contributing to this toxic environment. And, and I ended, um, I ended my PhD having like depression and anxiety. Are you able to share a bit more about that toxic environment? What was it? Was it? You, you, I, I think you used the word competitive with me before. Um, like, what, what was what was driving that toxicity? I think that it was the extreme competition, right? Um, which is not about Harvard. I think that it's about any other like Ivy League university. Um, I think that academia has a lot of things to improve. <laughs> and, and I think that uh, the setup in academia is prone to create toxic environments. So your advisor has all the power in the world, basically. Um, if he or she wants to sign or not sign your PhD, you know, he or she can do that. There is always like this, this competition among peers because you want to please your advisor and you want to demonstrate that you are better than your colleague right next to you. Because the, at least in my experience, this is what they were asking from me to be better than anyone else. And I kind of like, I didn't want to be better. I wanted to be equal or I wanted to do things in 
you know, in a collaborative environment, I'm not material for for not being collaborative and for being like, yeah. So I think that it was basically a lot of that. I And that I had other interests. And my advisor used to say that science only happens in a lab. And I think that that's fundamentally not true. So, and we had a lot of, not arguments, because at that point, I was not strong enough to say anything to him. But I used to think, you know, like I used to think, this is, I don't think so. I think you're wrong, but I don't know how to explain it. So, and, and the fact that I had other interests, made me kind of like the weird person in the lab everybody else seemed to be okay with that environment so yeah it was it was not fun um and that's one of the reasons why when i finished i was able to graduate defend my phd and be done with that i wanted to stay away from i thought science you know i was so wrong but i thought i need to stay away from science for a little bit and the other thing that i said i'm going to go back to this later is that and I'm going to, uh, to pause here and to say that I'm about to release some information that might be a trigger for some people um, about abuse. And it's that at the beginning of my PhD, I got raped when I was still in Barcelona. I got raped by another PhD student from my same institution. And I that's the reason why my Spanish advisor said to me, if you stay here, you're going to quit and you're not going to finish your research. So let's find you another place to go. Because she was right. I was ready to quit. Um, it was very hard, as you can imagine, because like no one wants to, <laughs> to, to have an experience like that. But also, uh, it was pre-Me Too. So society was not like it is today. I didn't find a lot of... Um, understanding I kind of like felt that suddenly he was the victim and I was the perpetrator but people used to approach me saying oh but he feels really really sorry he's going to therapy like is there a way that maybe you cannot sue him or I was like I don't care if he's going to therapy I am also going to therapy and um so it was uh, really, really hard. And those two experiences combined, you know, they were years apart and they were very different experiences. But both of them happened in an academic environment. And I was very naive because I thought that academia and academics were some of the most smart people in the world. And to find that some of the most smart people in the world can also be some of the most uh, cruel and not attuned people in the world <laughs> that was really hard for me so that's why I wanted to stay away from science when I graduated uh, for for a little bit thank you very much uh, for, for your for sh sharing this and for for your for your vulnerability and for your for your courage and I'd, I'd love to go back to that uh, painful period and just li listening to you I, I just find that really important to emphasize again is until relatively recently there wasn't a lot of 
empathy and space to hear stories like yours of, of I've been raped, something bad has happened to me, I need help, and someone needs to be held accountable. And it, it, it sounds like it's only very recently that people who've been victim of aggression like that can can be acknowledged as as having gone through that and are uh, are allowed to move on is is that fair to say absolutely i think that you're right i think that so for instance as an example it took me 10 years to admit to myself and that i was raped and to use the word rape I was not saying that. I was not talking about it. I was not releasing that type of information. Like very few people knew about that. And and I was specifically not using that word. I was like using other ways to say it, but without saying it. And when the Me Too started, I was I was living in the US. I was living in New York at that time. And I, I was I I had I was already a mom. I had my daughter. And the Me Too was like, it was very important for me. And I'm guessing that to a lot of people like me, it was very important because I started reading a lot of stories in social media, in the news. And I was like, oh my God, that's the thing that happened to me. And this person is saying that she was raped. I struggle a lot with my mental health during the Me Too uh, rise, because it was like I put that thing that happened to me in a part of my brain that was, okay, I'm going to store this here that doesn't bother me. And and then the Me Too resurfed, like made everything to go back again in my life. And and I I was I had nightmares about it and I was seeing his face again, things that didn't happen to me in a long time. Um, I was not able to sleep and and it was finally when I admitted out loud, this thing also happened to me. And I, I identify with the Me Too movement that I found peace. I actually um so and and because apparently I cannot do things in a in a small way, I need to do things in a grand way. I decided they invited me to to talk about science in a open mic night. I don't remember I don't remember the name now of the show, but it's a show where scientists go and they share a story, uh, a human story in a scientific environment, right? And everybody shares funny and happy stories. And somehow I decided to share this. And I, so, and I talked in front of uh, an audience. I didn't know them for 10 minutes about this. And it was the best decision ever because I, I, I it was a catharsis, right? Like I, I said it out loud. I, with a mic in front of an audience, but it felt like a catharsis. It was like, okay, it's out. It's out of my body. It's out of my system. And I, I now finally, 10 years later, I'm going to allow myself to move on from that experience. Thanks again for, for sharing. And you raised so many important points and, and dimensions there that I certainly don't hear discussed that much is what happens 
when such a trauma uh, occurs, how do we deal with it? Um, how, how do we grapple with it? How do we overcome it? How do we redefine ourselves? The fact that for the longest time, uh, it wasn't even recognized, what happened to you wasn't even really recognized as something wrong. Um, completely uh, blocked uh, the, the, this process of, of healing. Ten years is a long time. It is. And it's not that it was not recognized as something wrong. I mean, when it happened, I went to the police. The police arrested him. And and we entered this painful, you know, peregrination, basically, with lawyers and going to court. And if if you or, like, if someone listening ever had a legal issue that needed to go to court, it's not quick, it's not easy. So you have this big pain, you need answers, you need validation, and then you enter in this process that takes years. And in this process, now, I wanna, I wanna think that now things are different and there's a protocol, but they treat me like I was the one that, that, that I did something wrong, despite the police assured me that I did nothing wrong. They arrested the guy. You know, it was for me, it was very interesting how the police treated me and how the legal system uh, was treating me. It's complicated when, when you are a survivor of one of these episodes to see how the world treats you. And this is one of the things that I think that the Me Too is changing for the better. Is that okay to ask if we can zoom into the period towards post your PhD mm -hmm. when you were recovering from that phase of toxicity and trying to find your, your bearings? I'd love to hear... And it, so it sounded to me that, like, for you, academia was it. Like, science is academia, and you're done with academia, and therefore maybe science. But somehow your perspective widened, and then, then you found a direction that gave meaning again. Yeah, I remember finishing my PhD and being completely lost. Like, I was, I, my feeling was I'm in a dark room, and I cannot find the door. But then I thought... Uh, research is the only thing that I know how to do. What else am I going to do? I was only trained to the research. I was so wrong, but that's what I thought. So I took a job as a, um, as a technician at the um, Smithsonian, at the Natural History Museum. So I went back to an academic environment. It was way different this time, I have to say. It was way, way, way nicer. But still, that was not my place. And I could feel it in my bones that that was not my place. So I took, I talked to my husband and I said to my husband, I'm going to try to do other things. And I was living in D.C. at the time after my Ph.D. And I was very privileged because, you know, he, he had a good salary. We don't needed to live with my salary. Um, so I, I was working, but I was working part time. And because of that, I allow myself to try other things related with science. 
I signed up for the Association for Spanish Scientists in the U.S. And I started collaborating with them in a lot of different things. I also signed up for different associations related with women in science. And I started to get trained in science communication, science advocacy, a lot of different things related with science. And that's how I found science diplomacy, because I was right next to the AAAS, uh, the um, American Association for the Advancement of Science. We, like, their headquarters are in D.C., in Washington, D.C., and they, at the time, were giving uh, trainings in science diplomacy. You use the metaphor of a tree and jumping from branch to branch, which I find really beautiful and actually applies to every other topic. I was thinking in my world of energy, you could also see it as a tree with different branches. Yeah, yeah so they told me that science was linear and, and I discovered that science was a tree, right? And that you have a lot of different branches, the branch of science diplomacy, the branch of science communication, the branch of science advocacy and research is just one of the branches of the of the tree of science so yeah i became a monkey going from like <laughs> swinging from <laughs> one branch to the other one and then i found out about this program homeward bound which is an international program that started in australia for women with a background in science and they give you training it, it's kind of like a leadership training for women with a background in science related with the environment. And the, the, the year of, of training culminates in an all-women expedition to Antarctica. So that was 2018. And that was another key event in my life because I went to Antarctica as a scientist, but I came back as an activist. And I met a lot of women doing a lot of different things related with science, not only research. And some of the women were actually doing uh, diplomacy, environmental diplomacy with a scientific component. So when I came back from Antarctica, I started flooring with the idea of going back to school. And that's how I ended, a couple of years later, finally going back to school and I got my other master's, which was in Fletcher. I did GMAP. Can, can you go back one second to that Antarctica experience? You mentioned it was life-changing. You mentioned you came back as an activist. I know very little about it. Uh, this is an influencer that uh, I follow that went on the trip there. Uh, and it's only uh, through that that I realized how big a deal it is, how difficult it is to reach this place, and then how intense and life-changing it is to be in this unbelievably remote environment, almost uh, in a different world. What, what is, is there a memory that you could share of like that time? Antarctica is amazing. Antarctica is a, a fascinating, very special place. I think that once you go to Antarctica, a little piece of your soul stays in Antarctica forever. And I also think that, that this is important because nobody lives in Antarctica, right? Antarctica doesn't have citizens. So who is going to 
speak for Antarctica if if Antarctica doesn't have citizens. And I I want to believe that the people that we had the the privilege and the pleasure to visit Antarctica should become the voice of Antarctica and should be able to speak in behalf of Antarctica. Antarctica is is beyond beautiful. You have a lot of contrast and contrast in Antarctica because it seems that is a it's powerful, but at the same time, you want to protect it, right? Like it's you feel that the place is not going to be able to survive if we don't help, basically, and it's it's white and black. And but but there's no green, there's no yellow, there's no I don't know. It's it, you know it's, <laughs> it's very interesting, and it was very key and important in in my life, both in my professional and in my personal life, because it was also I shared in that in that ship that I was raped, and I was not the only one, and so and we we had a lot of conversations about things I like you know also someone else shared that they deal with depression and anxiety at the end of their PhD and I was like me too so it was you start talking about things that happen to you in your life that is not necessarily your professional life but it goes hand by hand and I found out that I was not unique and that I was not weird and I guess that I was not crazy. And if we move to your activities in science diplomacy, what can you share with us? What are you involved in, and what are some of the challenges that you see uh, that are that are keeping you awake at night today? Oh my God, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the challenges is to understand that decisions have to be informed by science but not exclusively. And sometimes decisions, despite being informed by science, might need to partially ignore science because they need to uh, follow maybe, you know, other other uh, type of information, like social information or economic information. But um, I think that um, it is hard for me when I see that scientific information is not taken into consideration, and especially about the urgency of all of these environmental, let's call them crises, that we are experiencing, we need to act. We need to act now. We needed to act yesterday. And when we handle this much of scientific information and you don't see that reflected in the final decision, it's very, it's not only frustrating, it's sad and it's scary. And what, what would be one of these issues where you, you see that need to bring in a, a, uh, a non-science perspective? Are you talking about, for example, the pace of managing the energy transition and what it does to um, communities who are maybe in, I don't know, for example, in mineral extracting countries? Or what are some of these issues where you see this, these dilemmas uh, playing out? I think one of them is Africa. When we think about uh, phasing out or like eliminating completely uh, fossil fuels, 
but you have developing countries that need or they think that they need uh, fossil fuel to fuel the economy to be able to develop. I think that this is an issue that I I go back and forth a lot. And I'm sure that like me, a lot of people, I would love to hear your opinion about it. You know, like developing countries, why are they like they have the right to develop? We developed. So they have the right to develop. How can we uh, assure that they are going to develop, but at the same time that they are not going to compromise the environment? And also like the, the same thing that I just said, that they are not going to compromise. Like we were the ones compromising the environment, right? We were the countries that um, developed at the expense of the planet. So it, it's, a, it's an issue that... Um, Sometimes for me, it's really difficult to explain it to people outside my little bubble because it's very easy to say, oh, Africa shouldn't be consuming more fossil fuels because that goes against history. Like, yeah, but like we, we, we use that to develop. I find it fascinating also in the debate about, for example, there was a conversation around should, should DRC develop its um, natural resources or um, sh should should its nature be protected uh, through nature-based investment to generate offsets and then yep. the ethics of it like of developed countries in, in essentially exporting their commitments by uh, introducing almost a new form of colonialism um, but by by um, incentivizing communities not to develop their resources in exchange for money to, to pay for the cleanup in in developed countries and i find it interesting from your perspective as a, as a science diplomat um, to hear some of these voices that we hear here maybe less when we look at it from a from a climate finance or from a project development standpoint yeah it's um so every time that i go to a to a cop for instance it takes me like a week to recover First of all, because I'm exhausted, but also because it's sad. It's, I cry a lot in cops. I last cop in Egypt. I remember attending a side event at the Fiji Pavilion. Some people from Fiji were talking, and I cried. I cried all the event. I was crying, and I was not the only one. And you know, and they were talking about sea level rise and how their whole country is going to disappear and how for them, you know, uh, creating a little hill in the middle of the island is important for survival. And it's, it's sad, it's scary, and sometimes it's paralyzing. And you know, you know the science, you know the science behind it, and you don't really know how to help with your science, because science is not the answer for everything. And science is just information. And, and we need to add the human component to all of these diplomatic conversations about the environment. And when we talk about this, um, adding this human element, it can mean really different things. One argument I'm hearing is we should be very mindful of what the uh, speed of the energy transition is doing to humans um, in terms of, for example, 
impact of higher energy costs uh, impacting the poorest uh, element of society or the impact that it's doing in terms of uh, resource extraction to produce cobalt or lithium or other things. So I, I really would love to, to hear your your thoughts on how, how much are these human aspects truly reflected and where, where are you seeing maybe um, uh, some of the negative impacts of, of um, uh, climate action uh, be, be being transferred to communities that, that don't, don't necessarily have a voice either? I think that the human perspective is slightly better in the biodiversity conversations than in the climate change conversations. I think that um, the, the biodiversity negotiations included from an early stage the indigenous voices. They try to have the thing that you just said that I mentioned the last time about like sitting nature at the table, which by the way, this is not my phrase. This is Dean Tide's phrase. She said that or like the first time that I met her through Zoom, she mentioned that. And I was like, oh my God, yes, we need to sit nature at the table. Um, so, and I think that biodiversity negotiations do a better job than climate change conversations. It's also different, you know, climate change conversations are now kind of like uh, the Disneyland of the international negotiations. A lot of people go to COPs, which it's not necessarily bad, but um, COPs are huge. A lot of people go, a lot of people go there for the picture. Um, and and I think that biodiversity conversations are still more, uh, the COPs, the biodiversity COPs are more manageable. And, um, and I think that um, they, maybe they learn from the mistakes made with climate change. And that's why they included indigenous voices and local communities from the very beginning. Thank you very much for, for this, uh, Alicia. We, we have a small tradition at the end of this podcast to ask three quick closing questions. But before I do that, is there anything else that you wanted to, to share or, or talk about? No, I just think that I, my final message is that uh, probably going back again to the main topic, connecting all the other topics that has been being connected with nature. I think that I think that connection with nature is what is going to help us to survive, actually, because I think that we can have as many negotiations and conversations about climate change, about biodiversity, about desertification, you name it. But unless we are connected with nature and we sit nature at the table, we are not going to be able to negotiate an outcome that benefits everyone including us. And I think that it is very important to go back to being connected with nature, which is very difficult nowadays because most of the population in the world... I find what you're saying absolutely fundamental. Uh, and it goes very, very deep. I think you're right that a lot of us, and I, I count myself among those, grew up with the perception of being separate from nature. This concept of placing myself among nature and being part of nature is, is something that grew much later in life. I totally agree with you, right? I think that we mentioned that the last time that we talked. 
So everybody go out and hug trees, please. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll go with the three quick closing questions. So one is a recent read that changed you. I'm going to say that is a kid's book, actually, because that's mostly what I've been reading these days, books for my kids. <laughs> and, and I found one book about ecofeminism for kids. And wow. I was, yep. So because I have two kids, a daughter uh, and, and a son, and I want them to understand that equality and gender equality is a big important part of all the things that mommy is doing. But, and, and if we really want to, let's say, quote unquote, save the planet, gender equality is a thing. And I found this kid's book about ecofeminism and I really liked it. And I was very happy to see that people are doing kids' books about these important and difficult topics. Love it. Love it. Uh, we'll put the, the title in the, the show notes if you give it to me. Okay. <laughs> Second quick question is a habit or a hack or a ritual that has improved your life. I don't have a lot of habits or rituals, but um, I recently, so I moved recently and um, we have a little terrace and we put a lot of plants in the terrace recently and it's been really nice to drink my coffee in the terrace in the morning with um, the smell. So we put a lot of herbal um, herbs like rosemary and this, this type of things. And I really like going out and smell nature in the morning with my morning coffee. <laughs> Love it. And last one is a uh, place that has special significance for you. I think that I mentioned it at the beginning, the, the, the beach where I grew up, Satuna, in the north of Spain, has a special place in my heart, but also it's every time that I go there, I find myself in peace. I cannot express it. It's just, I am there and I relax and I can feel my whole body melting when I am there. And it's the only place in the world where I feel like that. Wow, great. It sounds like a place I should visit. So thank you (laughs) so much, Alicia. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been really energizing and really, really inspiring. thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the coalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you.